Welcome to the Wonders of Thetis podcast, your one-stop shop for all your Dragon Age role-playing game needs. My name is Ren, and Jessica is not here today because she's out of town, but uh, filling in for her and just, you know, being all around cool and we're happy to have him anyway, uh, we have got the wonderful Andy Klosky from Blackfall Press. Thanks for coming in. And here I was thinking my days as a substitute were over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now I've gone and hurt his feelings. No. You, you'll come back on the show later, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, anytime. It's glad to be glad to, glad to be back now. Well, thank goodness. Fantastic. Well, we've got an excellent show. We're finally going into a country we haven't talked about yet. We've, uh, of course, had a poll, as usual. This time we decided to focus on Orlesian backgrounds because we hadn't touched on anything uh, even slightly Orlesian yet. We've got mountains of stuff to talk about in Orlais, but we're going to just touch on a little bit of it today. The winner of the voting uh, went to the Orlesian Exile, which is perhaps the um, at least currently least Orlesian background of the four. Uh, it's the one you're probably most likely to find not in Orlais. Yes, it's true. Uh, and for many and varied and terrifying reasons. Uh, but we'll be getting into that later. Let's see. We've got no shout-out today. Uh, no news this week in Thetis. We're keeping our ears to the ground for Faces of Thetis. And uh, I saw that it was on like the spring lineup for 2018, along with like 12 other books. Which sounds like it's going to be a really exciting year for Green Ronin. Here's for hoping. The uh, the Amazon release date has stuck at April 10th okay. for a while. Hopefully that will be accurate. I've been itching to get my hands on this book for a while. Ooh, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's going to be a good time. Really excited to mm-hmm. finally find out what Iron Bull's strength stat is. <laughs> Too much is what his strength <laughs> These stat are important is. things much. to know. And I got to know. Maybe two below Cassandra. <laughs> Ooh, good one. All right, um, but we've got plenty to talk about before we uh, start putting our masks on. So first, why don't we go ahead and consult that codex? You can ask me questions if you like. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but... Oh, good. Thank you. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Welcome to the codex. We've got a couple questions... Uh, from a couple of friendly faces, a couple of new. Uh, we got one newcomer here, uh, but first we'll go with the uh, veterans. Uh, first is a very quickly becoming veteran by just the sheer volume of questions that they are asking, uh, <laughs> which is Mark Natris on our Facebook page. Thank you again. So I, I I plucked a couple of questions out of the growing list that is coming from Mark here. So we'll just uh, we'll grab a couple of them real quick and we'll see what we got. Uh, first question was, uh, how would you handle making potions? Would you make a talent tree like poison making or rune crafting? And, yeah? I think that's certainly one way that you can go. Um, potions are a useful enough thing in in the Dragon Age rule set that it would be perfectly reasonable to uh, make, okay, at novice level you can make you know a lesser healing potion, lesser mana potion, you know, uh, journeyman, you get the next rank up, and then master, you you have the full gamut. Um, for groups that 
if you want, if you as a GM want to fade this sort of into the background, where it's oh, this character has it, it's assumed that they're working on that in their downtime. I might fold it into poison making. Mm. The only worry that I'd have with that is that poison making also autom- also gets grenades already. It's true. So you're effectively giving them three crafting things. So. T- for pure balance, you might want to look at runecrafting, even though it's a little athematic in that regard. You know, what's the difference between making a, you know, alchemy versus uh, versus carving a rune? They don't mm-hmm. necessarily go together, but balance-wise, it would make sense. Fair enough. Um, if I was doing it, I would probably take a look at the herbalism skill from Dragon Age Origins. And uh, beyond just making, like, health and lyrium potions, would probably want to try and uh, lump in a couple of other things, like, goodness, what was it? Um, the A lotion that you could put on to make your skin turn to stone. Or swift, mm-hmm. like, uh, rock salves and uh, swift salves. And they had a couple of other things that were specific to, like, elemental damage, which I suppose you could also do. Uh, they're a bit specific, but why not? Yeah, and that would, and if you have a, if you have a player that's actively interested in that sort of thing, by all means, engage with it. The mm-hmm. template is already built for you in terms of in terms of the poison making talent. It's it's an easy shift to say, okay, well, instead of lore poison, you have lore nature or you know what have you. Gotcha. You could even just probably use the cunning healing focus to do it anyway. It would, oh, that would that would make sense too. Yeah, it would make that a very very useful focus. But I mean, if that's what your character was going to be doing anyway, then maybe say that you know it kind of it all kind of bleeds together anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, other than that, you could you would have, you would if you wanted to make it a talent, you would probably you would of course have to make a novice journeyman and master degree, and then decide what things you could make at all those different degrees. So it would perhaps be a bit of work, but um, a couple of the folks have already done it. Uh, there is the Esoterica from Thetis volumes, uh, which apparently they're working on a fifth one still. I saw that it it rose to the top of the uh, Dragon Age forum. Yeah. So, uh over at Green Ronin, mm-hmm. and so that's a uh, that's a great resource. If you yes. haven't checked that out, you know, head over to their forums, and it's available as a PDF download. And it's it's just a number of house rules and you know different you know unique specializations and you know little uh, kind of rules additions like uh, like that. It's mm-hmm. it's a great resource. It does definitely make Dragon Age a lot deeper than it originally was. It was written when there was only one box set of the game, so there was a lot of room to grow. Some of it might not jibe with the stuff that's been made in the later sets and now in the core book. Um, so mileage may vary. You may want to look at it closely, especially if you're letting your players have access to it and they're pouring through it uh, and saying, hey, can I use this thing? You'll want to at least take a look and like decide if you want to use things like the encumbrance rules they have, because a lot of the rules they also make play into each other a lot. So if you want to use one rule set from them and uh, not another, you'll have to just be careful and and watch uh, watch for potential potholes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but by by and large, it's even even with you know having to tweak it, it's still mm-hmm. there's just so much there that it's you're bound to find something that that you'll be able to easily drop in with, if not no alterations, then minimal ones. It's definitely 
like I said, a great resource. Check it out. It's true. Um, specifically, if you want to do the herbalism thing, you'll want to check out Volume 3, which is the Apothecaria, which I believe includes an herbalism talent and a lot of little lore tidbits about the various um, materials that you can gather, and they have a, a rather impressive list of things that you can make with it. So, as a possibility, take a look at that. That's it's it's already made for you, and I think I'm I would not be surprised if some other folks have already taken a stab at it, but none of them are coming to mind right now. All right. So we got some more questions, it looks like. Many more. Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand the second one, though. Uh, the second question we have is, do you ever use even target numbers, or do you just give a minus one penalty to the player's roll? Oh, I was totally transposing <laughs> that in the notes here. Do you even use target numbers? <laughs> <laughs> do, ever, Generally, do you even use ever target numbers? <laughs> Something like that. My, I just went dyslexic there for a moment. Hey, you good. Just didn't read it correctly. I got you. Um, um, I imagine that this is probably coming from the fact that the tables in the core rulebook list uh, target numbers as uh, ascending even numbers, which I, I think was just kind of where it ended up going. They wanted maybe like because I think they decided that with using the three d sixes they've got the bell curve. So the most common rolls are 9, 10, and 11. So they made, uh, assuming that you had like a bonus of 1, then you were probably going to get 11s very often, so they kind of made it the average, and then built around that, I imagine. That's just my guessing. I don't, I haven't talked to them about it personally. That make that makes sense. Um, now that I actually understand the question mm-hmm. here, um, having that sort of half step can be useful. Sure. Um, if you want something that's, maybe would rank as a, a moderate test or a slightly difficult test that, you know, it, it's difficult, but, oh, let's make it just a touch easier. Or, oh, it's difficult, but it's a little harder than difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's a good way It's a good way to educate those sort of actions that aren't necessarily, you know, by-the-book sort of actions. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it's someone attempting to be creative and it's a situation that doesn't necessarily favor them, you know, using that slightly increased or slightly decreased difficulty makes for a makes for a makes for a good compromise as a GM. I agree. That sounds that sounds reasonable. Uh, if you want to get things nice and fine tuned, then I don't see any reason you couldn't do it. Um, as to whether or not I do it, I guess so. Sometimes. I think I uh, I end up doing it sometimes if I'm basing target numbers on like abilities that bad guys have. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I usually kind of stick to the whole like uh, the scale that they've got. But that's just me. That's that, that's just how I do it. It's comfortable. Yep. I mean, the table's in there for a reason. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, ease of use, at least. Right. So hope that answers the question. Um, Third question from Mark is, what do you do if you don't qualify for any specializations by level 6 or those you do qualify for don't make sense for your character? I, the idea... That, that seems to roll right into that, that second one, too, or the it one does. right below it yeah. as well. Uh, uh, do you keep a chosen specialization in reserve and unlock it when you qualify? It seems like that could be abused. Uh, the answer to that last bit is definitely. It could probably definitely be abused. Um you're technically only allowed two specializations, and um, you're designed to take one at level 6, 8, and 10, and then eventually at 14, 16, and 18. 
Let's see. But um, they do mention on page 65 of the core rulebook that uh, if you don't want to take a specialization or you can't qualify in one, you can take a degree in a regular talent instead of a specialization talent at these levels. And the next time you get a specialization talent, you would just take the next degree, uh, next take the next degree in the specialization that you want. Hopefully, by that point, you qualify or you've just decided that that was the level you wanted to take it instead. Um. So the only thing that I could see as a weird thing that would pop up from those is that if you take a take it later, the way that the book is written, it's it makes it sound like if you like skipped it at level six and then you took the novice degree at eight and then the journeyman degree at ten, when you go to level fourteen, would you pick a second specialization and start taking degrees in that, or gain the master degree of the first specialization you went for? If it was my game, I would probably let you pick whichever one you wanted to do. It would be the choice that you had made that that early, so you'd have to live with it. That, by and large, I think the way that I would handle it, I if someone if someone came to me and said, "Okay, I I want to be I want to be a Templar. I've been working towards this this through the first five levels of game so far. You know, I've been working towards Templar." I'm one stat point short that I'll have at level seven. I would I would probably just say, sure, you can quote unquote take Templar at six, even though you don't qualify, but you can't actually use the benefits until you hit level seven and you've you've managed to meet the stat requirements. I like that. Um, I think that's reasonable. To me, it's you know just a general compromise in term in terms of. You know, keeping the player happy for something they've worked for while simultaneously not giving them something that they haven't earned. Right. I think that sounds fair. And um, as for whether or not you can keep it in reserve and unlock it when you qualify, I think that, that answers that question. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, think it, it a... effectively is giving them a level with or, or a level or two with no reward whatsoever mm-hmm. and you know, kind of just retroactively once once they get it, now you can use it. Makes sense to me. Hope that answers the question. Both those questions, Mark. I, I think those are fairly reasonable things to do, and um, we don't know what players are going to get up to, and they may change their decisions or decide that they need better stats to get through the adventure that they are currently facing. So, who knows? Just they'll have to be flexible. Uh, but those sound like good ways mm-hmm. to go about it. Yep, definitely. So, Thanks for the questions. Yeah, thank you, Mark. We always appreciate it. Got a lot more questions from you to get through, and we're very excited to keep getting to them. Um, next question comes from our good friend, Parsival, on the Green Running Forums. Thanks again, Toby. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have Toby on again sometime. And and this one is near and dear to my heart. He, yes. uh, Parsival asks, what do you think of the three-act, three-scene model? He says he finds it quite useful as a planning tool. I, um, this is the former English teacher speaking in, in me. <laughs> I, especially for convention games, I l- love working within the the traditional three act or five act structure, depending on, you know, what what school literally what school you went to. Um, it provides a very finite, understandable structure in which you can ground what you're doing. Yes. We are we as human beings. We are hardwired to th- to look at things in threes. When we see, we want a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when, if you as a writer, if you as a you know scenario designer, as a GM, are using what's what's referred to as Freitag's uh, 
plot pyramid or uh, dramatic pyramid, um, hmm. you have your introduction, your rising action, your climax, your falling action, and your denouement. Uh, the resolution of all the things, the relieving of tension. That's if you yeah. if you look at those things as. The introduction is we are sitting down at the convention table. We are sitting down, picking our characters, you know, going over, you know, quick rules and just intro to like what our characters are doing. And if your denouement is congratulations, we won. Here's the end cutscene. Everybody's going to get up and stretch and, you know, and get up from the table happy. You have precisely three encounters Sounds <laughs> within good to me. that within that time slot. It fits very nicely in terms of a traditional four-hour convention game. Um, and it's very easy to understand. It's a very easy tool to write. And you can find tons of resources online to assist in outlining a three-act or five-act, you know, however you want to phrase it, adventure. So absolutely one of my, one of my go-to tools. Ironically, though... <laughs> None of the adventures I'm writing for this convention season use a three-act structure. <laughs> yes, please do. And um, I'm actually finding it quite useful for myself with uh, writing a couple of adventures for... Uh, writing the adventure I made for Dragon Age and writing adventures later. It's It helps, especially if you're like looking at that blank page uh, and you've got like, I need to write an adventure on this page. So, so, so I need to write an adventure on this page, and that blank page is just staring back at you, daring you to write <laughs> on it. This is an excellent, excellent tool that you can use to make all of that really simple. You can just make an outline, like, part one, this is what they do. Part two, this is what they do. Part three, this is how they all end. So it's it, it can be really helpful as a uh, as an organization tool to kind of... I guess, may, uh, let's see, simplify the process of making your adventures. And it's especially useful for adventures that need to end in a specific number of sessions. Definitely. And concurrent with that, you know, when you're just, if you're, if you're designing something for a convention, it has that very finite structure. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely good in that regard. Uh, this is actually something I discuss fairly at length in uh, in Cold Steel Wardens, actually, where I have a chapter that's you know a, most most role playing books have a chapter about the GMing, but this one's like how to specifically do investigations, and along with the three act structure, I also discuss um, a timeline based uh, adventure as well or investigation as well as a. Um, uh, a pyramidal style investigation where, okay, at the base you find these amount of clues which will lead you to the next layer up, which okay. will lead you to the next layer up, and eventually will lead you to the pinnacle of what's actually going well, down. Well, I like that. So, so so if you're interested, that's on, you know, drive through RPG. Hmm. And even though it's obviously not so much Dragon Age, might might give you some hand in structuring oh, yeah. uh, some, uh, some adventures there. I'm always a big fan of mining other RPGs for ideas. Or oh, yeah. just other GMing books. There's lots of great advice you can find in any book that you can take to most games. Oh yeah, one of my one of my absolute favorites in that regard is um, uh, Hamlet's Hit Points came out a couple years ago, <laughs> and it looks at it looks at a couple different you know major pieces of literature and film and dissects them down into dramatic beats and how 
how tension unfolds, builds, and is resolved through those beats in the context of a, of a role-playing game. It's a real, it's, pardon, it's a really neat read. All right. Uh, it's from Game Right Press. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> I, I've heard of it before, but I've never actually touched it myself. Um, oh, it's worthwhile. So there are definitely a lot of excellent tools that you can use to try and keep things simple so that when you're staring at that blank page and it's staring back through you in a very uh, Lovecraftian sort of way, you can finally pull out the Elder Sign and get typing. Yeah. One of my favorite pieces of writing advice. Writing is easy. All you have to do is stare at a blank piece of paper until drops of blood form on your forehead. <laughs> I haven't heard that one, but I suppose I'll remember that one uh, when I get to finishing that adventure tonight. <laughs> All right. So thank you, right. Percival, Toby. Always appreciate it. Uh, an extra question. You always got the really good ones. Uh, that was, yeah. All right. But it looks like we got some more. Yes. Uh, Jonathan Steven through the Facebook page. Uh, this there. is actually all one question, but it had a lot of context that I thought I should include. Um, Jonathan Steven, I believe, is a new listener of ours who uh, contributed this, I think, honestly, hours before we got to this, got to recording this episode. So nice timing. Yeah, uh, definitely. So uh, we'll paraphrase this. Um but the, the 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 first line is basically the question, what are your thoughts on allowing PCs to learn specializations before 6th level? And he mentions that various NPCs learn specializations pretty early, pretty much come prepackaged with them. Like Alistair, when you get him right away, he's already got the Templar spec because that's part of his background. And, you know, if a character has a, a good backstory, then they have, can have a good reason for getting access to them or at least maybe qualifying for them already. Um, and so you would say that they probably need to still wait, uh, perhaps a minimum level of three. And um, the Fantasy Age actually already does this. It was one of the things I kind of liked about the change from Dragon Age to Fantasy Age is that in Fantasy Age, you get your specializations two levels earlier for every class. So uh, specializations start at four, and then you get the other talents at six and eight, and then you skip a level, you skip one at 10, and then at 12, 14, 16, you get your second specialization, uh, as opposed to Dragon Age doing it at 6, 8, 10, 14, 16, 18, making you wait really long to finish that second one. Yeah. But, and um, to, to me, that's an easy change to make. That's literally just bumping up, you know, the bumping up the level two levels mm -hmm. rather than. Uh, rather than necessarily working on it, working it on a specific basis, you'd obviously have to make a couple changes in terms of the way the prerequisites are, mm -hmm. because obviously the way they're designed now is predicated on being at sixth level. Yeah. And you know, if you use those prerequisites, chances are, unless unless someone has very precisely kitted themselves out, right. I want to do this by fourth level. You know, they're not going to meet those prereqs, but. That's a that's a pretty easy, elegant fix right there, just literally bumping it to the same levels to match fantasy age. And it wouldn't surprise me if it was if there was some feedback from still there? Dragon Age. I think I might have yep, lost you. Still here? Oh. Okay. Just having a hiccup in Skype, um, maybe. Oh, there you are. Uh, okay, we're good. Welcome back. Um, a couple of these do uh, <laughs> A couple of these specializations do require you to have like a, a, a like several like more than one ability at three, which sometimes uh, some levels, especially if you're rolling for your stats, can be 
pretty punishing, which means that you might need six levels before you qualify for the spec. Um, but I actually uh, took a look at the... And, and another thing you'd have to worry about is the progression of how a character gains class powers. If you just take the specialization levels and scoot them up two levels, um, then like for the mage, level four is an exciting level. Because you get a new spell, you get spell lance, and you'd get a specialization. Uh, and and by let's say by that uh, it, because if you scooted it away from level six, then at level six all you get is a new spell. So it is uh, well actually technically I guess you'd still get a specialization just but at level ten because you scooted it up two levels you'd only be getting a spell at level ten uh, and nothing else would happen besides focuses increased mana and increased uh, constant increased health. But um, you were gonna say. No, that's not it's not necessarily a bad trade-off, yeah. though. I think that's uh, that's still perfectly reasonable mm -hmm. in terms of uh, in terms of a level progression. Fair enough. Um, I actually, when I was looking at it, I saw that uh, you could potentially, I think, for most of these, move it up to level three as early as that, and just swap uh, because at level three, five, and seven, everybody gets a talent anyway. You could perhaps swap them out uh, and just. At the levels you would normally get the spec, you'd get a talent instead. Um, that could work too. As a suggestion, just, uh, but, just an even swap there. Right. Yeah. Though it is very early to get specializations, and some folks are, mm -hmm. some players may just not be, may not have a character that's ready to take the spec that they want just yet. So, yeah. it's a tricky thing to do, but it's not impossible. So not bad. Mm -hmm. um, and for those for those characters, you may want to take the advice that we gave earlier in terms of just you know letting them have that open slot that they can just fill backwards in with mm -hmm. a with a talent or specialization that they haven't qualified for. So sounds fair to me. So thank you, Jonathan, for the new question, and thank you everybody for the questions. Always appreciated. Uh, if you have a question about the Dragon Age RPG, whether it's mechanics, build suggestions, questions about lore, clarifications about old episodes, or anything else, send a message to Wonders of Thetis Podcast at gmail.com. Send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, or SoundCloud accounts, or send a personal message to Cot the Protector or Healer Puff on the Green Running forums, or send a message to Cot or Lease on the D20 Radio forums. I guess that's just me today. Yeah, it's not me. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. We have gotten nothing for the Dissonant Verses today, although I'm cooking up some stuff for later. I don't know when it's going to be done. Ooh, exciting. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take the opportunity oh. to plug again. Hey, sure. Uh, Gen Con Event Reg is still going to go live. Uh, pretty shortly. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I'll be on before it goes live. So, uh, so if you do want to get to get in some Dragon Age at Gen mm -hmm. Con, I'll be running uh, Silver Wings on a Black Wall three days uh, three days <laughs> of the convention there, uh, set in during the events of Inquisition, as well as um, not too long from now. In fact, ten days from we were recording this. Uh, on March 24th, if you're in the if you're in the Ohio Valley, uh, we are uh, at, at Wittenberg University in Springfield, Ohio. We'll be hosting WitCon, and I'll be running a number of events there, including a an alpha playtest of my new horror RPG, uh, De Civitatis Day. Whoa, that is an amazing name. Yeah, on the cities of God. It is. Uh, it's occult horror set in 1135 Jerusalem. Whoa! Directly, 
directly between the first and second crusades. Oh, that sounds really cool. So, Dang. Uh, the 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 investigation that I, or the scenario I'm running is called the Fourth City of Hell, and it's kind of a murder mystery set in the Abbey at uh, St. Peter's at Tiberius. Oh man, that sounds really cool. So, so if you like uh, if you like uh, Name of the Rose or anything like that, that'll be right up your alley. Excellent. Ooh. I have got many animal companions wandering around the room, so you may hear the <laughs> pitter patter of tiny uh, pod feet in the background. So my apologies. Yeah. We're all very excited to be here. Uh, no, that's all right. I've exiled mine. <laughs> yeah, mine demanded entry into the room quite angrily, and yeah, now they're already starting to make a mess. All right, find a place to sit. <laughs> anyway, well, speaking of exiles, <laughs> nicely done. I suppose we should probably get to that main topic for today. Is it fate or chance? I can never decide. So, you're an Orlesian exile. You can turn to pages 24 and 25 of the core rulebook to see this background for yourself in all of its glory. But, we're going to talk about it ourselves today. Um, so, I guess first obvious question is, uh, what is an Orlesian exile? Uh, an Orlesian Exile is actually one of the few backgrounds that gives you a hook to play with right away. Uh, you have left Orlay. Um, backgrounds make no assumptions about why or how you left, uh, but the background makes it clear that you are from Orlay, uh, but not welcome there now. Uh, the background may demand a bit of detail, which we will discuss, uh, but it makes very compelling characters. Uh, the Grand Glam has, game has claimed many lies, and you may be one of the lucky ones to escape it. For now... <laughs> Never seems to escape forever. No, no. The game, let's see, the game has many moves and many players. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit uh, and touch on that a bit. One of the best ways to play uh, play a game in, uh, or lay. Um, but first we'll talk about a couple of the things, like who in Dragon Age already has this background as an example you can look to. And I think the most shining example, in my opinion, is Leliana. Uh, although she was uh, I, you know, she was uh, raised in Orlay, so technically had a Ferelden mother, I still consider her, I think she still considers herself uh, Orlesian for the most part. Yeah. If we're looking at these as backgrounds, not ancestry, yeah, right. she's definitely Orlesian. Definitely. Um, and especially by the time of Dragon Age Origins, that is pretty much the background she's got. She's not in Orlay anymore, and she has very good reasons for not being there anymore. Yeah, especially if you've played the what Leliana song DLC, yes. where you find out exactly why mm -hmm. she's not welcome in Orlay anymore. Yeah, exactly why she doesn't. Ha she's not exactly in a hurry to get back. So definitely check that out. It's a lot of fun if you have if you have access to Dragon Age uh, Origins, especially now that it's I think it's backwards compatible on the Xbox One. I believe so. I don't remember offhand. I'm a I'm a I'm a PS3 guy. I gotcha. Yeah, uh, me too. Honestly, <laughs> uh, one of these days I'll get a PS4 and play Dragon Age yeah. Inquisition on. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I mean, I played it on my PC, which played it better than my PS3. But my PC is not that great. And mm -hmm. uh, now that my laptop is starting to have a couple problems, it's an old old thing that I had when I graduated. 
So it's it's about time to get a replacement. Oh yeah. So one of these days I'll play Dragon Age, uh, Inquisition, and all that glorious, glorious PS4 brilliance. Mm, graphics. Exactly. Um, other examples uh, can include Isold from Dragon Age Origins. Uh, see, um, Arl Eamon's wife and the son, and the mother of Connor. Um, she's originally from Orlais. She chose to stay in Ferelden after the Civil War was won, and uh, Orlais no longer occupied Ferelden. Um, she was looking for Eamon the whole time. She was smitten. Mm. Mm. Nice, cute, nice, cute little story. I liked it. Yeah, forbidden love. Oh yeah. There's a and lot of demon those. possession. There's a lot of those happening in Dragon Age. Both of those, actually. Um, <laughs> another example uh, that I found that's not probably not going to immediately be like a, elicit that. Oh, hey, I know that person is Delcy Delancet. She shows up a couple times in Dragon Age Two. She's from Orlais. She lives in Kirkwall, but she's part of the On the Loose quest, which is when um, Knight Commander Meredith asks Hawk, assuming that you're working for the Templars. <laughs> Uh, she asks you to go uh, find some runaway mages, and one of those mages is her kid, who she has now uh, given some money so he can get out of Kirkwall. Yeah. In the wake of Inquisition, I think we have a lot of additional mm-hmm. options for Orlesian exiles, especially you know if you're if you're setting your game in a during or after Inquisition, mm-hmm. you have a number of. People who, depending on depending on whether you know Gaspard or Celine is on the throne, Ooh. there are a number of people who don't want to necessarily be in Orlais, Ooh, uh, yeah. possibly including either of those. Oh man, no kidding. So, so those some great examples. In fact, uh, with the pregens, uh, I'll be bringing to Gen Con, mm-hmm. one of which is actually an Orlesian exile. Nice. Uh, Yvette Richon is a bard who joined up with the Inquisition right. after picking the wrong side in the in the Orlesian Civil War. Oh no. <laughs> well, Yvette has a has a string of bad luck behind her. Oh, poor gal. Well, uh, so there's there's a couple of examples to work with, and of course the beloved Leliana is the big shining example. So if you want to be Leliana, this is your background. Definitely. Um, now, of course, you come from Orlais. What's Orlais like? Uh, we're going to go over a quick history of Orlais, and we'll just do it for this background. We'll cover probably a couple other uh, specific topics about Orlais uh, as they pertain to the background. But um, after Andraste's army marched against Tevinter, the Imperium allowed the southern lands to be taken by Mafarath's sons, who divided the land among themselves. Isarath, the eldest son, consolidated the Syrian tribes into a unified whole, forcefully, in a time known as the Grand Unification. Many culturally distinct tribes were smashed together, and things only got worse when it was later discovered that Mafarath had betrayed Andraste. Isarath's brother, Verald, lost control of the city of Navarra and began scheming to take Isarath's land and power. Then Isarath's wife, Jashavis, made what many considered to be the first plot of the Grand Game. She aided Verald in killing his brother Isarath and married him. After a time, a rebellion sees Verald removed as further Alamari influence on Syrian lands. Jashavis then becomes the ruler of the now unified people for 42 years. That, that just smacks <laughs> of uh, the Iron Lady right there. Ooh. She is now known as the Mother of Orlais, and while it is not known for certain whether this was all a scheme of hers, she is often portrayed as a victim of the depredations of Alamari conquerors. Uh, she is not. Some are not so convinced that she was the victim, but the first player of the game. 
nearly a century later, during the chaos where the Inquisition was established, the King of Orlais was a young Cordelist Dracon I. He was a brilliant tactician and a devout follower of the quickly growing cults of Andraste. He conquered many neighboring lands and dragged them together into a large kingdom. He was then crowned emperor in Valroyal and ordered the, the construction of a grand temple in the name of the maker and his bride. This grand cathedral would take about 200 years to build, but would serve as the beacon for the Chantry, as Dracon declared Andrastianism to be the official religion of his new empire. When, divine, when the first divine, Justinia I, is named, magic is declared illegal, except by those mages who specifically work for the Chantry and in the name of the maker, and a new calendar is established. And people now use this calendar to determine the years. Um, mm. It's almost like we have specific ages that determine. I know, things. right? We have the first one we have is that divine age, uh, let's see, during uh, which of course also held the second blight, which started only five years into the newly named divine age. Dracon would miss a chance to strike at a weekend to winter to save the Grey Wardens from a siege on Wysop Fortress, and for this the Wardens officially converted to an Andrastian order. Uh, none of Cordelius's descendants could match his ability, and Orlais would eventually sink to shrink to lose the control of the Free Marches, the Anderfels, Navarra, and Ferelden, and shrink to about its current size. Orlais would then go on to have war against the Elves of the Dales, sacking the elven capital of Halamshral, but not before the Elves managed to sack Valroyo. Uh, this would man, there's <laughs> just sacking everywhere. Yeah, let's see, yeah, the, the, the those who have been sacking the sacked have been sacked. Uh, this would lead to the creation of alienages in cities and large towns by the order of the Chantry. Elves were given a place to live if they renounced their pagan gods and trusted in the Maker. Uh, most of Orlais' history after this is pretty much their conquests and their conflicts within and without. Uh, Orlais has conquered all of its neighbors and lost them at least once, uh, with the notable exception of Tevinter. Uh, Tevinter, however, would have four exalted marches called against them, uh, after not only breaking off from the Chantry, uh, but creating their own Chantry, electing their own divine, and declaring the death of jo Divine Joyous II as a holiday in Tevinter. Uh, the next age was called the Black Age, after the Orlesian Chantry's nickname for the Imperial Chantry's divine, the Black Divine. Uh, Orlais would aid the rest of Thetis in fighting off the invasion of the Kunari with three more exalted marches, and it's a lot of war. Orlais is yeah. Orlais just does a lot of war. Yeah, they and and it's interesting because playing through the the various video games, it's very easy to see Tevinter as kind of that crumbling kingdom, mm -hmm. but or Orlais really, in a lot of ways, fills that role even better because more recently they held all these lands under their thumb. It's true, and now you know they're they're barely holding themselves together. It's true. Thing, it's they they mirror each other much more than they would like to admit. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, now we should talk about something very important to your character, uh, which is your exile. Um, even though your background says you're exiled, it does not say why or how. Uh, this is something you should definitely take some time to talk to your GM about to create openings in the story later for plot hooks and as details to paint your exile from the Empire of Orlais. There's a lot of cool stuff you can mine in here, and I'm sure if anyone who any GMs who get a Norwegian exile are going to want to start mining those mining those for gold. Definitely, the one worry that I always have with the, with this sort of character, though, mm -hmm. is one that we actually discussed on a couple podcasts ago. The uh, the epic uh, creating epic stories yes. one uh, is the idea of the special snowflake character. Mm. Yeah. 
Because here, you have a character inbuilt with a secret. Generally speaking, that character's not going to want to let on exactly why they're not welcome in, in Orlais. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, this is a major plot point. You know, if, you're, if your campaign goes to Orlais or has an, a major Orlesian NPC, this is going to come up. Yeah, yeah. So... This is where, if you're GMing or if you're playing as this character, you need to have that conversation to make that the sort of open secret mm-hmm. that will allow you to actively engage with that with this background. Definitely. And I mean, and you know, the bullet points that you have here in terms of you know different potential exiles. Did you shame your family or someone else's family? Maybe you played the game poorly and you're just waiting for the heat to die down somewhere else. Maybe you played too well and need to step away from the consequences, let, let, the, let the pieces fall where they may. Mm-hmm. Are you formally exiled or is this a kind of let me get out of town before someone figures out what I did? <laughs> um, I'm sure there's plenty of that going around. Oh, yeah. Are you alone or are you with someone? Or, you know, maybe you're on the other end of Orlais from someone trying to meet up. A friend, a lover, your family, you know, some interested NPC that the GM can then work with. So it this is the sort of background that really benefits from saying, this is not something I want you to look into, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is big secret would hurt me very much. Yeah, there's just there's just so much role playing opportunity oh, yeah. that you know it it it's, it bears going it bears going into, but it's it's the sort of thing that if someone's too careful, so to speak, that it ends up getting overlooked, which is a which mm-hmm. is a damn shame. Of course, if you are an avid player of the game, maybe you want to uh, maybe you'll kind of like tease your friends with it. Uh, because folks who like to play the who play the game and do it well or enjoy it, uh, there is a kind of a thrill in um, seeing what you can get away with. So the, your play, your character may like drop hints to their friends that maybe uh, maybe if they they're they're such a good player of the game that uh, I you know I just rocked the boat. I got to get out of the boat for a little while and kind of let you and seeing kind of tease your other players, uh, their fellow companions, into asking them more questions or finding out just how brilliant they are. And as I mentioned with, with Yvette earlier, you know, the if you're running an Inquisition era or post-Inquisition era game, the, the Orlesian Civil War provides you a ton of background in terms of why mm. your character may or may not be welcome in Orlais currently. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, you know, if Selene is still on the throne, they backed Gaspard, or maybe they were one of Briala's spies, or, mm-hmm. you know, or or vice versa. If Selene, if Selene is no longer with us and Gaspard's on the throne, maybe you were a loyalist. Maybe you were someone who uh, did not rebel against Selene and want to see that uh, dynasty restored. Mm-hmm. Or if you're going through, like, a historical campaign and maybe doing, like, a, a war campaign based on, like, Navarra fighting Orlais, um, the Ferelden Civil War and the occupation of Ferelden, um, them, uh, maybe a couple of the Blights, uh, there are, uh, I mean, Orlais has been involved in pretty much every Blight 
up to this point, uh, <laughs> to varying degrees. They kind of gave like a token help for a couple of them, but eventually had to like uh, throw out, throw in a couple, throw in a couple of bones to help uh, the other beleaguered poor nations that are much smaller than Orlay and don't have quite the same resources. So there's lots of conflict and there's lots of opportunities for people to make poor decisions that gets them out of Orlay. Or maybe you're just an adventurer. You just got tired of Orlay and left. Mm-hmm. And that's entirely possible. I mean, uh, Gaspard, I think, says it during the game. I have, or says it during Inquisition. I have no patience for the game. <laughs> it's not, you know, I, I take care of things when they're right in front of me. Oh, yeah. I take care of the, the things directly. He... Maybe, maybe your character just, you know, has had enough and has said, you know, I'm out. You know, I can't stand this game anymore. I quit. Game over. <laughs> Table flip. <laughs> um, and uh, a couple of good questions that you can probably use to help build a party around this exile is... Are any of your fellow PCs involved in your exile? Or are any of your fellow PCs also exiles for different reasons? Um, Or maybe one of the other PCs got you exiled, or were just in the blast radius of the game's machinations when when you were exiled. Um, And another important thing that plays very heavily probably into your character's goals and their motivations is, can you go back to Orle, and do you want to... uh, and more excitingly, I think, for the GM than for you, uh, is if you do want to go back, is there anyone who wants to keep you from coming back or ensure that your exile is permanent? Alternatively, is there someone waiting for you to come back? Is there someone who, you know, if they hear you're back in Val Royale or Halam Sharal, that, you know, they're going to actively seek you out Mm -hmm. because you've been gone so long? Maybe they maybe they need your you know unique type of services. Indeed, maybe they do. That's a good way to look at it. I, I've been I, I, I guess I went through all of the like uh, all the darker ones. Like <laughs> the, <laughs> there are people who don't want you to come back. Uh, the <laughs> and uh, and they don't and they don't like you and and they think that mm-hmm. they want their house. Well, there it could be something as you know, you have an artifact that you've been wanting to keep out of the hands of some Orlesian uh, noble, or maybe maybe even an Orlesian mage. That if you end up back in Orle, they're going to track you down and try to take it from you. That sounds fun. So these are all very important things that you should talk about uh, with your GM, and of course, if you come up with your own ideas, then please. The exile away. It's good stuff. <laughs> um, now, of course, we'll have to touch a little bit on, uh, for the folks who don't know about it, uh, what is the grand game? Because we keep mentioning the game that we're playing. Like, Are they also playing the role-playing game? Uh, no. No, they're not. They're playing a very different <laughs> oh, game. No. Um, there are two very strong campaign frameworks to use in Orlay. Uh, campaigns of war and campaigns of intrigue. And we are talking about that second one. Um while all nations have intrigue to a degree, none of them enjoy it quite as much as Orlesians do. Um, whether Orlesians like it or not, the game is always nearby. The powerful and meek have much to gain by playing, and there are always people excited to play. Uh, the game is simply the name of the incomprehensible web of backstabbing, one-upmanship, political maneuvering, and other machinations that keep all of Orlais' nobles on their toes at every party. 
Every word said at a gala, every stone embedded in a fine shoe, every look or gesture at your enemies, every even every adventure you go on has ripples through the game. A single slipped fact could mean disaster or fortune if used in the proper way. Uh, let's see, a drop of poison in someone's food creates a scandal that while the innocent and guilty may distance themselves from it in any way, they also relish the chance to see how they can how this can benefit them and harm their foes. Uh, real players of the game waste nothing, and they miss nothing. Um, bards, while simply singers and minstrels in other nations, have special significance in Orlé as powerful players of the game. Their services are coveted, and influencing these players can be just as important as avoiding them. We'll definitely have to talk about bards later on. Definitely. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll get to them eventually when we come back around to the rogue specs, which is probably going to be in a little while. But we'll get them on mm -hmm. the list. So I see you're adding something. What you got? Well, uh, in terms of the mechanics, looking looking at what you get uh, within the game system as an Orlesian exile, mm -hmm. not unsurprisingly, your key your keystone ability bump is going to be to communication. You know, even <laughs> a, even as an exile, you are adept in the game. Mm -hmm. You are adept in talking uh, and getting your point across, whether that's through sub subterfuge or or through persuasion. Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing to note that in terms of the in terms of your 2d6 table is the fact that the three stats perception strength and dexterity that you could end up with uh, this really has a heavy warrior focus especially Definitely. with the seven and eight slot being for strength so it becomes very easy to come up with a, a chevalier or you know some other sort of uh, individual, mm -hmm. some other sort of warrior. Um, going along with this, riding at number at at a nine, uh, something that very commonly associated with uh, with the warrior class. I appreciate heraldry <laughs> as well as a as a cunning focus. I appreciate that one of the things you can get is the weapon group light blades. Uh, definitely. Regardless of your class, you just you know you can always make sure that you can slip the daggers into your <laughs> into your uh, in, well into the throats of your enemies and then back into your sleeve, uh, where there is a clean rag waiting to just hold all the blood. Mm -hmm. And if you're planning on an Orlesian Rogue, which also works very well with this, mm -hmm. of course, um, that automatically gets bumped up to the, the focus in Light Blades. So Definitely. That, that, gives, that plus two can be, can be critical. Especially at level one, that can make a lot of difference. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, the two choices for uh, for focuses at the start, you you have your choice between uh, persuasion in communication or mm -hmm. cultural lore under cunning. Um, you know, both very useful if you want to do whether someone who's particularly a, a schmoozer or maybe someone who more uh, more keeps their eye on the the pulse of Orlesian culture. Mm -hmm. Both of those come in definitely come in handy. Uh, definitely, I agree. Now, the, uh, the Exile background is restricted to rogues and warriors. I, I personally would not see an issue as a mage, though if you're in Orle, chances are you're going to be part of the circle. Yes. Or you're probably not going to want to be in Orle, yeah. at which case you're probably an apostate. Yes, so, uh, which, is, which probably is informing your exile. Definitely. And truth be told, there's... Um, I, if I was in that situation, I probably wouldn't fight too hard to take the Orlesian Exile background because there's not a lot here that mechanically would uh, is support 
is going to support you to be a mage. Mm-hmm. You're probably better off taking the apostate or if you're in Orle, the circle mage yes. uh, background. Come from the White Spire. There's a lot of cool stuff to mine mm-hmm. in there, especially if you read Dragon Age Asunder. Oh, yes. That's a good one. That giant vault full of phylacteries. <sighs> I swear I'm going to run that adventure at some point. Oh, yeah. Totally. Please. <laughs> I think uh, a murder mystery... I think a murder mystery, like, in Dragon Age Asunder, having a murder mystery that is based around the Ghost of the White Spire, our dear baby Cole, would be very mm-hmm. exciting, especially if you start including the events of Dragon Age Asunder. And then you can oh, yeah. start getting a decidedly Orlesian campaign going there. <laughs> Lots of intrigue to be had. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, uh, in mentioning mechanics, I might also suggest that if you want to do some intrigue, taking a look at another age game that uh, does intrigue very well is uh, the Blue Rose RPG. That one actually does oh, yeah. intrigue very well, and they and their experts class, which is their rogue class, uh, also comes with a uh, comes with a couple extra powers that Dragon Age rogues don't get, uh, that are more geared towards role playing. If you want to be more of a uh, role playing based uh, exile uh, or somebody who was very good at the game and maybe even is looking for ways to get back into it. Yeah, and the nice thing is with the the way the rogue abilities are structured in Dragon Age, it's an easy swap. It is. Uh, it's one of my actual common house rules that instead of having fixed rogue abilities, uh, that when you hit a when you hit a certain level where you would get you know, uh, what is it bluff or uh, the one that lets you add uh, perception to your to your lethality, ranged attacks, yeah. those sort of lethality. That's it. Um, didn't I'm looking at the Orlesian exile, not the rogue. I gotcha. <laughs> the uh, but instead of instead of taking those in the order that's there, I, I literally I just let my rogue players pick one. That way they can focus their rogue in the direction they want to move. Because mm-hmm. let's be honest, you know the uh, the the dirty fighting isn't gonna isn't gonna help a marksman very much. Whereas really. lethality isn't gonna do a whole lot for your get up and knife them in the kidneys, rogue. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, but the, uh, the Blue Rose expert has a couple, gets a couple of abilities that are geared more towards role-playing and intrigue. Mm -hmm. It does have, I think, one or two mechanics built into the class that rely on things that aren't in Dragon Age yet, but they will be later, uh, because they use the relationship mechanic, which is coming in Faces of Thetis. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but they also do that, like, at this level, you can get a stunt discount on this role-playing stunt or this combat stunt. And uh, and they get a, a couple of extra talents to choose. I mean, they get, like, one like called Arcane Potential, so maybe don't give a rogue that one, because that involves magic. Because if you're doing that, yeah, you're that, probably that a mage. Yeah, doesn't quite fit the lore, yeah. So, be careful with it, uh, but definitely, ch- I would definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, by by and large, those are pretty easy swaps, and and Blue Rose by itself is a is a great little yes. great little setting, great Definitely. little game. Uh, I it was a big thing over at Wittenberg when I um, it was just after I graduated. We had a number of people who that was their that was their game of choice. Nice. So I'm I'm intimately familiar with Blue Rose. Good. Was that the True Twenty version or was that the Age version? Yes, that was that was True Twenty. Okay, I never played the True Twenty. Honestly, I never played anything True Twenty before. Um, mutants and masterminds. It's a, it's the same. It oh, was it the same system back in back when it was 
uh, first edition Mutants and Masters. Gotcha. Yeah, they're on their third edition now, so it's probably yeah. changed a bit. But oh yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I um, I gave up after second. Gotcha. Wasn't for you. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Very, I, I, I'll tell you the story in the postscript if you, okay. if you, if you like. Fair enough. Uh, that sounds uh, but good. it, the worst game I've ever played was a Mutants and Masterminds Second Edition game. Oh no! All right. Well, stick around for the post show if you want to hear this story. Um, right now we've got a collection of plot hooks that you can that you can use uh, right away to get either your players involved with an Orlesian exile or maybe use them as a story for your Orlesian exile. So. Uh, perhaps one of the PCs has the Orlesian exile background because one of their other PCs in the party got them got them exiled. Whether or not everyone is aware, they travel with their exiled companion to make amends or to keep tabs on them for someone back home. Mm, little duplicitousness there. Mm -hmm. Very, very Orlesian. Painfully Orlesian. Oh, yeah. And next one, we have the heroes meet a kind human with a fading Orlesian accent. They claim they've not seen their homeland in a long time, but have no desire to return if asked. Whether this NPC is helpful or not, by associating with them, the heroes find themselves being targeted by assassins sent by old enemies of this exile. The heroes find evidence that they also intend to strike against their new associate and have the choice, rescue them or help the assassins in exchange for favors from them or gold. You know, uh, most of these include some, devil, some, some nasty choices, but you know, that's what Dragon Age is all about. Oh, yeah. Uh, the next one. The heroes are approached by a benefactor with resources and a grudge against a Templar who outed them to a court at the New Year's Gala. This ruined them in their holdings in Orlais, but they have connections built elsewhere and an axe to grind against this Templar. Uh, the heroes find that this Templar is a good person in general and claims that their benefactor was dabbling in blood magic to get the upper hand on their opponents in the game, but had too many political connections to take down completely. If the heroes side with the exile, they could be generously rewarded. But if the heroes side with the Templar, they can remove a sinister player of the game from Thetis. Mm -hmm. Build a campaign off that. Oh, definitely. Blood mages, especially with the the spider web that that uh, that that original benefactor could have. Oh yeah. Right. You want to read the next so one? Next up, we oh yeah sure. Uh, the the heroes have a friend who they know is from Orlais, but they discover something new. Their friend is actually of noble blood. They could claim titles, land, and troops if they claim their ancestral rights back in Orlais, and they ask the heroes to help them do it. This puts your PCs right into the middle of the grand game, and, and the bloody intrigue may alert to the heroes that this world of masks and daggers may be too much for their friend. On the other hand, having an Orlesian noble with land and power could be useful if they need help with their own tasks. Um, I'm seeing a Fairbanks in here. <laughs> just, yes, um, yes, come on. Just a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm seeing that too. I hadn't actually thought of that when I wrote this, but that's that, that's pretty much the exact story. <laughs> oh, why didn't I think of Fairbanks? I guess he doesn't even know he's an Orlesian exile. He's just kind of... He does, well, he doesn't he, know about his ancestry, right? Well, he if you can, if you collect the three pieces that you need to prove his ancestry to, I don't remember the quest giver in mm -hmm. there. But if you take those to him, he asks you to bury it. He says, 
get rid of it. I don't don't do anything with it. I don't want that life. I don't want anything to do with that. And because he knows that if he's elevated to that status, you know, he's, you know, his kind of appeal for working for the common man and trying to make things better for them just is not going to fly at court. So, right. Um, so yeah, if you, if you take that tack, it seems like he's aware of it. Okay. At least. Fair enough. And, and does not want to be a part of it. Fair enough. It's been a while since I did that one particular quest in that mm-hmm. huge game. <laughs> there's, there's enough of them. There, there's plenty of those in there. Um, and finally, perhaps the heroes cross paths with an Orlesian on the run. They show the heroes their prize, a golden mask supposedly worn by Emperor Cordelius Dracon I. To the right buyer in a place like Antiva, this mask could make them a fortune, and they ask the heroes to help them secure that fortune. This thief is being tracked by a tenacious and power and resourceful bard, and the thief may have no intention of sharing the rewards once they feel safe. Can the heroes trust this exile, or do they have more to gain by siding with the bard? Hmm. Decisions, decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the all imp- and the all important question of if I do this, where will the dominoes fall next? Mm-hmm. How how much do we want to dip our hands into the game? <laughs> Definitely, there's so so much uh, so much rich history and lore in Orlais. Oh and yeah, so many you know backstabbings upon backstabbings to uh, to enjoy. Oh yes, and you can be right in the middle of it, or I guess perhaps now suddenly adjacent to it because you were tired of being in the middle of it, or <laughs> for whatever reason, Nancy, for whatever reason, you know, get into that game. It's fun. At least for the players it is. I don't know if your PCs will share your sentiment. <laughs> Hopefully no table flipping. Right. So... Uh, that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us at the Wonders of Thetis podcast. Thank you again, Andy, for being here. Hey, my pleasure, brother. Anytime. Yes. Uh, so this is Ren wishing lots of sixes on that dragon die. This is Andy keeping the dread wolf off your trail. Thank you for listening to the Wonders of Thetis podcast. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. You seem to enjoy yourself at the Winter Palace, Liliana. Or was that part of the game? Perhaps it was both. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the post-show. We don't do this very often, uh, so a quick explanation for folks who are new to the concept is we're done with our show. Uh, we've talked about everything we want to talk to uh, talk about on the on the show notes, so if you want to stop listening now, that's perfectly fine. We're just going to shoot the breeze uh, if, if that works for everybody. Uh, so feel free to just turn off this podcast and get to the next one. But if you want to listen, feel free. It's story time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about <laughs> tell me about this story. Okay, so I'm going to forward this uh, because, as it turns out, I, I actually ended up relating this story on, in a Facebook group that I'm in mm-hmm. uh, that is for superhero games. Okay. And the GM for this game was in there, and we, um, we we came to terms, and we you know yeah he was 
totally understanding and he okay. he readily admitted this was not his finest hour by any stretch gotcha. and he has extended me an open invitation to come to his table we are we are on good terms there is no hard feelings here whatsoever good good forward so this was a this was a game at origins uh, a number of years ago and you know of course i'm giant superhero comics nerd mm-hmm. um, myself and my wife and my bu- good buddy will all got into this uh, justice league game all right and the concept of the game was effectively uh the justice league meets the call of cthulhu oh which i don't know if you've watched the justice league cartoon mm-hmm. like the uh the animated series i did there yeah, there's was, a good stuff yeah there there's a two-part episode in there the terror beyond which is effectively the justice league fights cthulhu all right and it's it's one of the be- it's one of the best episodes, uh, best two part episodes in the series. Right, I, really, really enjoy it. They do kind of a a defenders homage, which is which is really neat. And all right, it's just really well done all around. I can't say I remember that so, one, but I really liked that show. Worth your time. Go back and watch. All right, it. fair enough. But so we go in and we go to sit down at this game, and with most convention games. I typically try to restrict my players at the table to six, maybe seven at the utmost. Mm-hmm. So we sit down, and there there are three people already there. And we sit down, that makes six. And then three more arrive. Uh-oh. So we're at nine already, plus the GM. And the GM has a friend of his that's, you know, uh, conversing. Oh, man. Okay, so it, it, it's crowded. It's, it's, a lot, it's a lot there. There's a lot of people. Now, yeah, yeah. Now, at that point, you know, Mutants Mastermind 2nd Edition, they had the DC stuff already released mm-hmm. uh, for going into 3rd. Um, so the Mutants and Mastermind stats were already there. So if you wanted to know what Batman stats were, like the official stats were already built, ready to go for you. This GM elected to build his own using Hero Lab. Oh. And I swear... I've never seen such weird stats in my life. Now, oh man, I, uh, my wife decided. My wife elected to play Zatanna, um, which is great because she looks good in fishnets. Um, <laughs> my, uh, I I picked Green Lantern, uh, figuring I'm going to do the John Stewart sort of thing. And because you look good in tights, bar. right? Exactly. <laughs> Spandex for the win. Heck yeah. And my my and Will uh, elects to be Batman, but he won't he decides he's going to play more of like the Adam West style <laughs> Batman. <laughs> All right. Which is which is which was fine and was entertaining. Good. But so we're looking over the character sheets before the game starts and Will notices that the way the stats are written because Hero Lab autofills mm-hmm. uh, things like the oh the maximum load and whatnot. Batman could deadlift three quarters a ton. Oh, all right. So Batman could lift my Kia sedan outside. Huh. Green Lantern, no ring, could lift a ton. All right. All of the stats across the board were huh. screwy like this. Okay. Just really genuinely bizarre nonsensical type stuff all right all right okay i can work with that they're just numbers on the sheet no big deal so the game begins and we're sitting down and he starts with the guy who's playing superman and the and the girl who's playing 
uh, uh, who's playing Wonder Woman, and they're on a date. Um. And there's some role-playing stuff there, and they get ambushed by Deep Ones, effectively. Okay. In the middle of this restaurant. No reason, no understanding why. Huh. Okay. The... And he runs that entire combat encounter with just those two characters. And no one else no one else has even been introduced. We don't know where we are. We don't know what we're doing. So there's seven other people at the table just waiting around. Just sitting there waiting. Oh man. Okay. Alright, that scene ends, and he shifts over to Zatanna and Aquaman and Batman investigating a lighthouse off the Massachusetts coast. Okay. And they're looking around the lighthouse, looking for the lighthouse keeper. You know, Batman's doing his his detective thing. And they get ambushed by Deep Ones. And, again, combat encounter. And it it's a, and because there's a, now an additional player, it takes another, you know, 30 minutes, half, uh, 45 minutes oh, to get through. And to this point, it has, go, it has been an hour and a half. And I have yet to do anything. Oh, man. Finally, finally, you know, he switches up to the Watchtower where it's the Flash and Hawkgirl and myself as Green Lantern, you know, up there waiting and, Mm -hmm. you know, we get a distress call and, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. So second act of the adventure was a a big combat, was actually really cool to see these, uh, you know, deep ones that had stolen Atlantean technology and were, were fighting them and they're trying to summon a, you know, a tidal wave to crash into... Uh, one of the cities, right. really kind of cool right. combat, a little lengthy. Like he's he's having trouble juggling people, even even though it's like one combat encounter. Okay. And you know I'm playing Green Lantern, so my power is effectively whatever I can think of. Right. right? Well, I'm just the entire time I'm just getting anything that isn't I blast him with my ring is kind of getting the run around. Okay. Just like, well, you could do that, but you're gonna have you're gonna be at this penalty. It's like, all right, fine. I shoot him with a laser. It's the least fun way to play Green Lantern. Right. I make a hammer and then I smack him with it. Yeah, but even something like that was like, well, you have to roll to create, and then you have to roll to to actually attack with it, and you're you know not proficient with anything. You it, it was it was bizarre. Uh, huh. Oh man. So the. The scene ends, and we we stop the wave by destroying this device, but the device flashes with energy, and we get teleported out of there, and we awaken in a prison cell. Okay. And we're stripped of all our gear. No explanation of how we got there, why we got there. Okay. We're just on a prison prison cell somewhere uh, somewhere underwater. Okay. Don't know how. Huh. But we, but literally, we were only in prison for like five minutes because it was for me. It was like, okay, well, I have my telekinetic call to my ring. I summon my ring. Okay, you have it now. I tear the bars off the cell with a construct. Okay, you're free now. <laughs> it was that much. Oh man. So, by this point, we are running late. Like, it, <laughs> I'm glad it you're is, still friends game, with this person. <laughs> Acquaintances, like we don't talk gotcha. regularly, Fair enough. but we're, we are on friendly terms. Okay. Good, and I believe he is a better GM than this. Good, uh, which is you know more than why I'm willing to give him more than the shadow of a doubt. Gotcha. All right. So 
so he's speeding along through the plot, and it has to do with, you know, a, a war between Atlantis and Thanagar that has not been explained, like, at all. And he fast-forwards to, holy crap, it's Cthulhu, everyone roll initiative. <clears throat> now, his version of Green Lantern had a, had a feat, I think they were still called feats in Mutants and Masterminds at that point, mm-hmm. where it was just three times per session, natural 20. You don't roll dice, it's that's a natural turn. All right. And I think to myself, okay, I've got two of these stored up. I'm going to use one on initiative. I want to go first. Nice. So I do. And we roll initiative. And again, you know, there's all eight or nine characters plus Cthulhu plus a bunch of deep ones swimming about. Like, it's a big, complex battle. My wife... Rolls a four on initiative. Uh-huh. So she says, okay, it's going to be a while. I'm going to hit the restroom. By the, by the time I get out, it'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, it, my turn will be up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So natural 20 on initiative, I go first. I say, I'm going to make a giant green vice grip and grab Cthulhu and try to hold him down from coming out of the water and, you know, enslaving mankind. And I use my other natural 20 from this ability. It's like, oh, you know, grappling Cthulhu with, you know, cosmic energy. Cool. Directly after me is the player who who played Hawk Girl. Okay. Rolls. uh, It's like, okay, I'm going to smash Cthulhu with my mace, with my nth metal mace. Rolls a 19, which for her, which, because Hawk Girl, combat type character, you know, has expanded critical. So she, you know. Crits on 19 to 20. Confirms the crit. One hit. Cthulhu's dead. Game (laughs) over. Oh, man. I'm, I'm like, I'm sitting there like, are you, what? (laughs) You're, what? Oh, man. You're kidding, right? Oh, man. My wife comes back from the bathroom. By the time she gets there, four of the other players have literally packed up all their stuff and are gone. Oh, man. All the gaming stuff, the battle mat and all that are, are being packed up. And she's like, what happened? <laughs> we won, Jules. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, I talked to the fellow after this game. I said, you know, uh, it seemed like you had a couple pacing problems there at the beginning. Have you thought about, you know, running the combat concurrently? Like, even though it's in three different places, just roll one initiative and, you know, just, you know, this is going on here while this is going on here while this is going on here. It's like, yeah, I tried that, but it took even longer. And I'm and I'm just thinking to myself, how could it take any longer? Oh. We spent oh, two hours with the intro. So that was the last Mutants and Masterminds game I've played. Okay. And it is it's a sour note to go out on. Yeah. But it it highlighted for me a lot of what I didn't like about that system, mm-hmm. but the but just top to bottom that that game was a train wreck. Gotcha. That's that's really rough, and that that actually it's not quite the same as mine. I mean that one's much more colorful and exciting, but <laughs> I that was one of the, I had a similar experience with three five for for Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons, which so I. I didn't play much of that, and honestly, I never really had a great experience with 3.5, for uh, similar reasons. For similar reasons. 
Was that the uh, the one you mentioned about you know getting ripped apart by like a flesh golem? Yeah, who was being played by <laughs> one of my best friends, and then he wanted to make me into a flesh golem with my fleshy bits, and I was like, I just wanted to be an elf. But we're we're getting pretty real here, guys. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna back out. <laughs> yeah, the um, I play I played three five for a good long while. Mm-hmm. I, I, sw- I jumped for fourth, and honestly, it's been a while since I've run any sort of fantasy outside of Dragon Age. I did some a little bit of Shadows of the Demon Lord uh, for my home group mm-hmm. for a little while, but mostly we've been you know we've been doing Cold Steel Warden stuff, and you know I ran a pretty long Hell on Earth campaign mm-hmm. using uh, the Deadlands Savage Worlds system. Uh, which I, I'm a big Savage Worlds fanboy, gotcha. so so I'm in on all that stuff. I've never played it myself, but I've heard good things. It if you're looking to get into it, uh, they're supposedly releasing a new edition at Gen Con oh, this year, well. uh, Savage Worlds Black, which uh, is kind of taking it a li- another step further away from kind of the minis based. Uh, okay, because the original edition of Savage Worlds was very much. Very much minis based, mm-hmm. and then the Explorers Edition and the Deluxe Edition kind of started pushing away from that, and I think this one's going to go even further away. Fair enough. Okay. Well, I suppose I'll have to take a look at that. Uh, Pathfinder is getting their new edition playtest released at Gen Con. They're doing it, yeah. they're doing that really weird thing. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if other folks. I mean, I get. I mean, other folks have you know like released playtests and such, but I don't know if anyone's ever had like a whole book that they printed out and like got covers like big hard covers for, and then released it as like a standalone um, book as a playtest. Fantasy Flight has have they? Uh, when they when they did Dark Heresy, the uh, Warhammer 40k RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, they when they did the second edition of Dark Heresy, that was released as they they. You could get the PDF for free, but mm-hmm. they were actively selling the PDF for like ten or fifteen bucks. Okay, and I'm like, this is playtest material. This, why? That is weird. Oh, and and I'll be honest. Yeah, you know, I I we had a, another extended game of Dark Heresy that we played. This was been a bit like 2007, mm-hmm. but the 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 second edition rules were a hot mess when they were in playtest. It was it was bad. Hmm. I think they're at least letting the uh, playtest be for a free PDF for folks who just want to have the playtest. But it yeah. sounds like at Gen Con they'll have like uh, a playtest, a playtest copies, uh, and an adventure and a flip map that you can buy if you want to really get into the playtest. Yeah. See, I, I don't know. I, I understand that as a marketing tool mm-hmm. and a way to and a way to make profit while you're switching editions mm-hmm. you know Which is, it gets the buzz going yeah. and it, and you know it i mean you're effectively telling your entire base hey all this other stuff's out of date you don't want to buy it anymore <laughs> right and yes and yes some of it's going to be useful especially stuff like adventures but any of the crunch books that they have mm-hmm. no one's going to buy that now no because you can't use I mean, it unlo- and exactly. They're at least it's not the current stuff. They're still letting you for Pathfinder Society because we we do a lot of Pathfinder Society. Um, they're at yeah. least letting you still report old like Pathfinder 1.0 adventures, so you can still make yeah. 1.0 characters and play the adventures. They're just not going to make any more. Yeah, 
Well, that's good at yeah. least. I I've never been a I've never been much on the organized play train. Gotcha. It's always been it's always been the home stuff for me. Fair enough. But uh, but yeah, that just it invites a it invites a lot of a lot of bad blood, and I think Paizo's starting to get a little bit of the backlash mm-hmm. that they were on the on the uptick for when fourth edition was released, and they they decided to go with Pathfinder. Right. Yeah. So. And now it sucks. Uh, uh, it sucks coming out with new editions. Yeah. And now uh, Chris Bramus joked that uh, he was waiting to see who's going to try to pull a Pathfinder on Pathfinder. And you're like, <laughs> we'll continue that rule set, and we'll do it ourselves, and it'll be great, and we will mm. totally eclipse everything else in the gaming community with it. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can't. I have a hard it. time seeing anything, anything pulling that what they did when they did it's it. true yeah Sim- simply because that you had the stars aligned you had a number of industry veterans mm-hmm. ready to break away from wizards because hasbro is notoriously hard to work with mm-hmm. and you know the rule set is open so they you know they didn't have any legal entanglements in that regards mm-hmm. and then to turn around and get a hold of the the license to publish dungeon and dragon I mean that's a that's a trifecta right there. They really had everything going for them, and mm-hmm. there's probably not going to be anybody who has quite that combination this time around. So no. I suppose mm-hmm. we'll see what happens to that. Also, uh, we'll see just how far into the back three five starts to fade. Indeed, I think it's had a good run. I'm cautiously optimistic about two point for Pathfinder. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, all things must pass, I suppose. I, I think I got a, I got a copy of third edition when I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll be thirty five this June. <laughs> I mean, make of that what you will. Fair, you it, know, it, it's how it goes. Uh, it. I mean, yes, there's been advancements. Yes, there's been you know revisions and refinements. But we are effectively looking at a rule set and mechanic that was that was published. Not in this century. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know, it's it's it did its thing. It did it very well, and it got a yeah. lot of folks into it, and they had a lot of fun with it. And uh, they wanted to try something else with four E, and that everyone else was just really comfortable where they were. So it. And, yep. And now folks are very comfortable with Pathfinder. So we'll we'll see how they do. Uh, Wizards, at least, I think, did right with. Fifth Ed, they pulled a lot of the good bits of a lot of the old editions and put them together, and I think it works pretty well. The uh, when during playtest, I was pretty critical of them. Mm. Um, I referred to Fifth Edition as something of a Frankenstein edition. Like we're gonna take this from Third Edition and this from Fourth and this from Second, and we're gonna smash them together, and here's a game. Because uh, which. It's functional and it works, and as especially as something to get to get new people into the hobby works very yes. very well. I will I will not begrudge them that. Mm-hmm. My biggest issues as a, a old school grognard here, mm-hmm. right, is I want to see a new setting. I want to see a new adventure. Gotcha. And literally everything they've published is a rehash of something they did already. You know, the one they're doing, Tomb of Annihilation, is is a rehash of Tomb of Horrors. You know, Curse of Strahd is a rehash of the original I-6, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a Temple of Elemental Evil one. We they, they fought Tiamat. You know, there's, it's just like, um, 
it's almost nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. Gotcha. It's like, give me an Eberron. Give me something new. You know, take this in a new direction. You have the magic license. Make a Magic the Gathering D&D setting. A full-on setting. Oh, man. Tell me tell me that wouldn't sell like hotcakes. That would... That would be. I think that would turn some heads in the in the and, gaming world. And all those all those kids who are going to buy you know magic releases at midnight mm-hmm. when they see a Magic the Gathering D and D book on the shelf, tell me they're not going to buy that too. Yeah, totally. You know, come on. That's it's just gonna it's gonna sell if they did it, but they but they don't. I, don't ask me why. I don't know. They've got like art. And My other like they've got like setting books for Magic and, out there. Yeah. But not anything that's D and D compatible, nope. which is frustrating. It's just my other complaint. My other complaint, <laughs> though, is, and I understand the reaction in terms of not wanting to overload with crunch books mm-hmm. and the like. There's been what two total? I mean, fifth edition's going on four years, if I'm if memory serves me I think correct. That's about right. And there's two crunch books total. Um, it's 2018, and that's it. Yeah, I think I think that's yeah, that's about right. It and to me, that's just that's an untenable business model. Mm-hmm. Simply because if you're sell, if you're making your money selling adventures, mm-hmm. you are selling to one sixth of your table. It's true because you're yeah. selling to the one guy who's running that adventure, and no one else, no one else should be reading that if they're going to be playing through that. Yeah. And yeah, if they really, really liked it and want to run it themselves, they might pick up their own copy. That's probably going to be like one or but two of those. But by and large, table. yeah, exactly. Whereas if you're selling a crunch book, and they and I would say Paizo have made the, I'm going to put mistake in quotes mm-hmm. here because Paizo, they've both made money doing this. That Wizards hasn't put out the stuff that other people will buy. You know, give us a book that's that's gets into fighters and paladins and barbarians and rangers. Mm-hmm. You know, get us a book that's bards and rogues and warlocks. Mm-hmm. You know, but alas, not to be so far. Maybe not yet. Maybe they'll maybe they'll notice that. Maybe they'll notice it. Yeah, but it 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 seems like they've been very reticent to do it mm-hmm. because. Fourth edition and and three five before it were so bloated with those. Mm-hmm. You know there were just so many books with so many additional options. That's understandable. It got it got tedious, but I think they've gone too far reactionary the other direction. If they released, if they released one book a, a quarter or one or three books a year, mm-hmm. you know that would be a uh, that would be spectacular to me. But what do I know? I've published a book. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's uh, I guess that's the choice they're making, and we'll see where it takes them. Okay. Um, Fifth edition is the one of the best selling ever, so I can't begrudge right. them that they've marketed it really well. They've run a bunch of stuff uh, in stores. They're they're doing all right. Mm-hmm. The kids are all right. Well, good. Now uh, maybe we can. I'm just hoping that age is gonna. I, I'm thinking that this is the year age is gonna really start taking like taking off because there's a lot of stuff coming out for age this year it's been yeah. it's been rough for the couple for a couple of years but i'm excited yeah with uh the titan's grave stuff coming out and you know i, I picked up the the bundle of holdings yes. that uh that was up previously so i i've been reading through that and it's 
it has it there, but mm. man, I mean, you've got this Dragon Age license. Oh, start pushing some books, man. Yeah, uh, it's it's rough, and um, they've got uh, Modern Age down the pipeline, which is supposed to be uh, that's going to apparently have uh, at least playtest stuff. Not playtest, but um, uh, like stuff in time for Gen Con. Um, That'd be cool. And they're going to have the Lazarus setting that'll go with uh, the um, modern age. Oh, Greg Rucka. I heart Greg Rucka. <laughs> um, hopefully, within the next few months, we'll see. Uh, I mean, ideally, next month, we'll see Dragon Age Faces of Thetis. Um, they've been mentioning a couple of times that they would like to do an Inquisition book because Inquisition added a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. Although, by this point, they might need to start thinking of making it like an Inquisition and Dragon Age 4 book. Yeah, that, that might be almost a better route to take, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, and I hate to say it, Dragon Age 2nd Edition. Maybe. It's not a bad idea. Yeah, up, There's... Updated for Inquisition and, you know, whenever 4 comes out. Mm-hmm. But There's a the the one I'll, yeah. I'll be honest the one mm-hmm. I'm most looking forward to is Orc. <laughs> I saw that. That looks like fun. Orc is a beautiful game. It's hilarious. <laughs> Fantastic. Well run. That is the funniest role playing game you will play. Excellent. I might have to pick up a copy when they release the newest oh, yeah. edition. Definitely. Huh. Alrighty. Well, I think I've got to call it a night here. Okay. My wife is yeah. Uh, giving me the eye from over oh, there. Oh, gotcha. So. Sorry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she's fine. <laughs> I won't keep him too long. <laughs> All right. Well, it's always good to have you around. And um, hey, my pleasure. Anytime. And, uh, cap off our episode itself. Um, so if you're still listening to us at this, this point, um, thanks for joining us at the Wonders of Thetis podcast. We'll catch you all next time. Have a good one. Cheers. Okay. Is it?